Hi Church, uh, I'm Richard from 10am Neutral Bay. Our Bible reading today comes from Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6, and then 13 through to 18. Please read with me. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. And then verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Hi, Church. I'm Elaine, and our second reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 28. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Every life is a miracle. Every child is a blessing. Every old person is valuable. And every person is of infinite worth. That's who we were meant to be, but sadly that's not reality. I read recently a harrowing account of one of the perpetrators of the Holocaust. And they described back in Nazi Germany how there was an order to the killings. First the disabled, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the poor, the illiterate, the old people. They almost categorised and killed people according to their so-called worth. Uh, To quote, it all started with the acceptance of this attitude that there's such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. And as the human screams reached our ears, we'd sing a little louder until we could hear those screams no more. It was barbaric, wasn't it? And yet, that's how we live today. We, we sing a little louder as we determine whose life is worth to be lived. We sing a little louder as we decide who should live or who should die. Because the stats for the unborn child and the terminally ill old person are horrific. In the US, there's one abortion every 30 seconds. Here in Australia, there's 100,000 abortions per year. In Victoria, abortion is now the third most common surgical procedure. Those lives are not worthy to be lived. Here in Australia, uh, parents who get the, the prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome For those parents, 70% choose to terminate that pregnancy because those lives are deemed not worthy to be lived. In aged care facilities, around 40% of old people are abused by their carers or their family because they're just old, they're just inconvenient. Here in Australia, about 90% of people claim to support assisted dying. So next year, it's predicted that every state in Australia would have legalised euthanasia because all those lives are deemed not worthy to be lived. Now, church, I know this is confronting. I know this is emotive. And I know that for some, it's profoundly personal. Uh, For some people today, you are living uh, with the deep guilt and shame and pain of some past decision that you've made. Uh, for some, we're living with this fear or pain of a, of a current diagnosis or disease. And I really don't want you to hear words of condemnation today. I really don't. Uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? There's no condemnation. There is full forgiveness. There is lavish cleansing. There's bucket loads of grace in Christ Jesus. So there's no condemnation today. But I do want to speak words of concern. Uh, Concern for the the value and the dignity of every human life. Concern for those who have no voice. Concern for those who are discarded as being worthless. Our topic today is the beginning and the end of life ethics. I'm going to preach a very short sermon, and then we're going to hear an amazing interview with two medical professors. But when it comes to this topic, there are two 
theological pillars. You've got to hold on to the sanctity of human life and the sovereignty of God. The sanctity of human life and the sovereignty of God. So the sanctity of human life. Because every life is sacred with intrinsic value and worth. Why? Because of, because of Genesis 1. And God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. That's your value. That's your worth. You're created by God in the image of God for the glory of God. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you, God, created my inmost being. God is our creator. God is our maker. God is our designer. And God knit us together in our mother's womb. I love that phrase, knit together, uh, like a, a weaver, like a tapestry. God takes each cell, each fiber, each vein, each organ, and with meticulous skill, God forms and creates every unique, precious, individual human being. And then he says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Same in verse 15, my frame wasn't hidden from you. My frame, so my skeletal structure, my bones, my height, my shape, my size, God determined all of that back in the womb when I was made, verse 15, in the secret place or the hiding place, the safe place in the depth of the earth, in that place where the, the ultrasound gives us a glimpse. But it's, it's really a miracle, isn't it? I mean, did you know that from the moment of conception, when the sperm meets the egg, your genetic code is all in place. Uh, by week three, your, your heart is beating. Uh, by week six, the first brain waves appear, the diaphragm is formed, all four chambers of the heart are there. Uh, by week seven, your arms, your legs, your hands, your feet are there. It's possible for the unborn child to get hiccups. By week eight, most of your major organs are in place and the unborn child can suck their thumb. By week 10, we have unique fingerprints, and we can feel pain. We are knit together from that moment of conception because, because human life really begins at conception. So church, can we please be careful about the language that we use? The unborn child is not a fetus or an embryo, or fetal tissue, that is dehumanizing, they're a human being. When Mary was carrying the Lord Jesus Christ in her womb, she didn't describe him as a blob of tissue, she said, my soul's offspring. When Mary and Elizabeth met in pregnancy, that John the Baptist leapt for joy in the womb, fetal tissue doesn't leap for joy, human beings leap for joy. So every human being from the unborn child in the womb to the age and the infirm staring death in the face, every human being has dignity and value because they are image bearers of God. And to be human means that we have both body and soul. We are physical and spiritual. We are not just glorified animals. I find the rhetoric of people like the moral philosopher Peter Singer deeply offensive to say as he does that an intellectually disabled child is less important than a dog, I find that deeply, deeply offensive. Because every human being is an image bearer of God, rational, responsible, relational beings. You've got to believe that every human being is precious, created, loved and known by God. So yes, the unborn child with profound disabilities is still a precious image bearer of God. 
And the geriatric adult languishing in a nursing home with late-stage dementia is still a precious image-bearer of God. And yet we choose to abort the one and mercy kill the other. God says, do not murder. But we decide that this or that life is not worth living. I'm sorry, I know this is really confronting. But the reasons for this are terrible. Less than 2% of abortions are because of rape or incest or a medical threat to the woman's life. About 25% is due to genetic selection or abnormalities. 66% talk about an economic reason. They can't afford to have a child. It's cheaper to pay for an abortion than to raise a child. And 75% talk about lifestyle issues, how this child will be an inconvenience for their lifestyle. Same with euthanasia. The main reason is quality of life. So when a person can no longer do the things they used to do, when they can no longer contribute to society, when they, they, they take more than they give, then we decide it's not a life worth living. Or we talk about being a burden, being a financial burden to our families. So the, the family have inheritance, impatience, and the, and the old people feel guilty to spend the money on their medical care or they're a physical burden. And into this space, the church must uphold this sanctity of every human life. Do you believe that every child is precious? Every old person is precious? Just because someone can't do the things that you can do doesn't mean they're less valuable than you are. Just because an old person has limited mobility or a diminished mind doesn't mean they don't have dignity anymore. Just because a child with a disability doesn't seem to contribute to society in the same as an able-bodied child does doesn't mean they are less valuable. And yes, every unborn child in the womb has dignity, not because one day they might be cute, but because they're a human being. The sanctity of human life and the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, because ultimately, God is in control over both life and death. Remember Job? He said, God, you give and you take away. God, you give life and you take life away. And that's God's job, not ours. Over our far place in our lounge room, we've got Psalm 139, verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, God, before one of them came to be. It's such a precious verse to me, to us. It's saying that everything in our life, God knows when and what will happen. And that's a huge comfort, especially in the times of trial and tragedy. So God knew that my brother would have cancer when he was eight. God knew that my dad would be terminally ill for when I was 11 to when he died when I was 20. Uh, God knew that Rachel's first husband, Ben, would die aged 32, leaving her a widow and a single mum. God knew that Rachel and I would have miscarriages. God knew that our three boys would be born prematurely and spend time in intensive care. God knew all of that. Now, I don't like any of that. But I do trust that God's over it and in control of it. And God knows the exact moment, the exact year, the exact day, the exact second when I will die. 
I'm not in control of that, but God is. I don't mean to be insensitive. But God's in control of conception as well. That, that moment when the sperm meets the egg, that's a divine act of God. In the Bible, God talks about opening and closing wombs. And again, I, I really want to apologize for those who are battling with infertility, but we've got to believe this. Genesis 16, God opens the womb of Sarah. Genesis 25, Isaac and Rebekah. Genesis 30, with Jacob and Rachel, God opened their wombs. 1 Samuel 2, Hannah talks about God closing her womb and then God wonderfully opening her womb. This is so important, church, because if God is sovereign over conception, there is no such thing as an accidental pregnancy, whether within marriage or outside of marriage. That may not have been our plan, but it was God's plan. A young 23-year-old was urged to have an abortion. But she decided to keep her baby and adopt him out. And so we were blessed by the life of Steve Jobs. Another young woman was urged to have an abortion, but she fought for the right to have her child. And so Andrea Bocelli was born. The same with Justin Bieber, Lane Beachley, Oprah Winfrey, Celine Dion, all these people could have been aborted. But we shouldn't determine who lives or who dies. It's not up to us. That's God's job. So Psalm 90, teach us to number our days because every day is a blessing from God. Every breath in our lung is given by God. We're totally dependent on him. We're creatures. That's what it means to be human. Part of our humanity is dependency. Crazy to depend on God on each other. It started back in the womb. That child is totally dependent on their mother for nurturing and for nutrition. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That, that word knit has two meanings. It could mean that weaving tapestry, but it also means to cover over. You covered me over in my mother's womb. That womb is supposed to be a place of protection and safety and security for the most vulnerable. And when it comes to the end of life, the biblical expectation is safety and security and protection because the family is supposed to care for the old people. Not outsource everything, not forget them, but be there for them. And when we can't feed ourselves and we can't clothe ourselves and when we're in pain and agony, it's not assisted dying. It's our personal presence and constant care. Last week I had the pleasure of interviewing two medical professors, both Christians, I've known them for a long time. Professor Megan Best is a palliative care specialist, an author, an academic into the beginning and end of life. And Professor Jonathan Morris, an obstetrician who specializes in high-risk pregnancy, an academic on the beginning of life. So let's listen to what they have to say. Uh, let's start with a, a big question, which is, uh, when does human life begin? Can you help us to answer that question from both a professional and a Christian perspective? I, I think such a simple question, but such a profound one. And I think it is a question that every Christian needs to reflect on and come up with an answer because like all issues, one has to have one's foundations right before one can 
grapple with some of the images, with some of the challenges that arise. Mm. I, I suppose over the years, um, I'm committed and convicted with the view that life begins at conception. Um, we know biblically, um, if we reflect on Psalm 139, um, you know, that intimacy between God and the unborn David. But elsewhere in the Bible, most compellingly, I find for Jesus to become fully human, it was his conception that was announced. Um, the Bible isn't isn't silent on that. And, and for, I think if I would ask one reason why I believe life begins at conception, it's the example of Christ himself. Mm. Um, the circumstances, the nature, and his conception is so integral to him becoming human, um, such that that's what I take away. Um, and, that, and so that is what shapes me professionally when coming to decisions about um, beginning of life issues. Th that is the view with which I'm convicted, both scripturally and applied professionally. Let's just think a bit more about that. So if, if life does begin at, at conception, uh, we live in an age where many, most couples have so many uh, uh, scans and prenatal tests during the pregnancy. Um, can you help us think through that? Um, what are your thoughts on this and how do you care for couples who perhaps during those testing find some potential abnormalities in the unborn child? So this is certainly an increasingly fraught area. And it's, again, a, an area where, as Christians, I think it's so important that one um, reflects and grapples with these issues um, before embarking on what is sometimes I think a little bit of a treadmill and an expected pathway from those who provide care. So there are many, many tests that are now available. Um, in the past, that was often simply um, an ultrasound. It's progressed through to amniocentesis, counting of chromosomes. It's um, progressed now beyond tests in pregnancy itself. Mackenzie's mission is a very large enterprise that is being heavily promoted, which is about testing genes uh, in the mother and the father um, to see whether there could be any potential for genetic conditions. Um, and if there are offering cycles of IVF and selecting embryos that don't carry such a genetic complement. Mm. As Christians, it's therefore very necessary to Think about when does life begin? When is a baby imbued with that being created in the image of God? And how does that affect any decisions about the, um, the, you know, the significance of an unborn child, regardless of what its genes may tell us? And I, I think these are issues that technology has far outpaced the reflectiveness we have in society generally, and even in Christian communities? I think one of the problems, as Jonathan says, there are so many tests, and a lot of people having the test, a lot of these pregnant women, don't realise that some are to, to make sure the baby's healthy and the mother's healthy, but some are to see whether uh, there are any abnormalities. And there is 
an unspoken assumption in many places that if there is an abnormality, you'll consider termination of the pregnancy. And um, I think the question of whether you want to have those tests is one that that more people need to think about. But because of pressures on on time for doctors, is a lot of women aren't fully um, fully informed of of what is involved in the test they're having at the time of the test. And as these genetic tests become um, more and more complex and uh, look at more and more different conditions, it's going to be harder and harder for people to understand before the event uh, whether or not they actually want to have those tests because if they're then uh, presented with abnormal results, that can be extremely difficult if they haven't prepared themselves for the fact that that these things are actually being examined. Can we just talk a bit more about that? Um, it's an emotive issue, but termination of pregnancy or abortions, uh, any wisdom there to how we should think Christianly on this issue? I, I think with many of these issues, I obviously we need to be loving, we need to be compassionate, we need to be sensitive. Uh, but within a truthful framework, uh, a biblically truthful framework. Um, if one holds the view that life begins at conception, obviously an unborn child, no matter what stage of pregnancy, is something to be protected, to be nurtured. Um, and and with that framework, though, I think it, there's also a compulsion on us to offer alternatives, um, I think, you know, we do need to reflect on what we are doing to promote support of, of children who potentially um, could be born and nurtured in another environment. We need to ask where in our churches are the, um, the developmentally um, disabled? Where, where, are the, where, where are our services? How are we supporting those? Because I think to be truly loving and compassionate it's just not being non-supportive of abortion, but it's about offering alternatives and, and, and living as a community, ensuring that everyone in that community is supported, loved and nurtured. And I think that's the challenge for us, particularly as we see secular society going in such a different direction. You know, some European countries now in the world have essentially ensured there are no children with Down syndrome in their community. And I, I think that's a really worrying precedent of what may come. There are some really great initiatives starting in Sydney, uh, training churches for how to be inclusive of disabled um, members of the congregation, which um, come from disabled communities. And, and I think uh, it'd be great to see more uptake of that training um, so we get better at it. Uh, because if we are saying to people, we think you do need to keep this child who has a disability, we, we need to support them once the birth has occurred. And one, one piece of advice Jonathan gave me that I, I thought I found very helpful uh, when I talk to people is, is that if, if you have an opportunity, if you find out your child, the child you're carrying has a problem, Meeting a family who have a child with that particular problem mm. uh, can make it so much more doable um, than just the, the the theoretical knowledge that about that problem. And um, 
I think that's that's something uh, that in the literature it's it's shown that if you can see someone coping with a child with this problem, it, it makes it much more possible um, for the the couple with with the child with this problem. Mm. Can we can we think about the, the issue of uh, those people who are struggling with infertility? So sadly, many couples today struggle to conceive. Uh, what 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 are some advice on the Christian attitudes towards IVF or other uh, technologies today? And then, partially, how do you walk alongside couples who are really struggling with infertility? You know, the first thing is to recognise what aspects of reproductive um, enhancement involve the creation of life, and which ones just increase the probability of a healthy egg meeting a healthy sperm. So it, it's, it's, it's important to understand if one takes the view that life begins at conception, what enhancements are there that just may increase the likelihood of conception? And I think we would all be very comfortable with those approaches. I, I think for those couples who have faced lengthy infertility, um, Firstly, don't lose hope. Um, you know, it's often said as many people fall pregnant on the waiting list for IVF than with IVF itself. And certainly Megan, I'm sure, has seen that and I've seen that. I've seen many people who have to one cycle of IVF and a child have had subsequent spontaneous pregnancies. So there is always hope. I, I think beyond that, before embarking upon IVF, one does have to be very clear about principles about when does life begin? Is this process going to result in, in the destruction of embryos? And is that acceptable? And that to me is, 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 is the real tension in IVF because many of the IVF companies essentially operate by the creation of many, many embryos, many of which will never see implantation, they're selected. And there are many aspects of IVF that raise really significant concerns from a biblical theological point of view. But obviously, we, we need to love those couples who struggle with this. It's, it's, it's something that, you, you know, until one lives through things, and I guess from my own life, I know you think you know about something, but until you've lived through it, you don't understand. Absolutely. I, I get contacted nearly every week by a Christian couple who've developed a, an ethical problem within their IVF treatment. Uh, I just can't tell you how many people have contacted me about this. And, and I think the main um, principle I would um, recommend is that you, you research IVF before you start because some of these problems, such as having excess embryos, you, you need to be forewarned to be able to avoid that problem because once the problem develops, there's no way around it. You, um, they, they, you could have a dozen embryos made for one couple because when you walk into the clinic and, and you've struggled with infertility uh, for so long, the concept that you might have more embryos than you want is, is just completely foreign to you. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think people are very emotionally vulnerable at the time they they start treatment and uh, will be agreeable to anything that's suggested. So unless you're aware 
at the outset that uh, the principle I think holds good is to say don't have more embryos created than you would be willing to have as children and then you will need to fight for your embryos. You will be seen as the problem family uh, mm -hmm. because uh, you will go against um, the way they usually operate, but that's what you'll need to do for your embryos. And, and I think the other principle I'd like to say is that you don't have to go to IVF if you are an infertile Christian couple. You are a complete family without children. And I, I think that the inclusion of other people into what is supposed to be very intimate process of creating a child is quite difficult for a lot of people. IVF is expensive, it's stressful, um, it can have medical complications. It is not obligatory to go down the IVF route mm -hmm. just because you're a Christian couple without children. Thank you. Can we just go to the end of life? Um, we looked a few weeks ago about our bodies and how as we age, our bodies are decaying and failing and then death is a reality for all of us. Uh, that in our culture at the moment, there's been a champion of, of what's called assisted dying or euthanasia over recent years. Can you help us think biblically about that and how to respond for this push for legalised euthanasia? I think what's happening is in our society where we're death denying, um, we're death fearing, and uh, there is also a great fear of becoming dependent on another person. Individualism is being pushed so hard that we have this idea that to ever be dependent on someone else is a bad thing. And I, and I think that the push for voluntary sister dying is a push for control, control over the timing and manner of your death. As you say, we're all going to get older, we're all going to die. And uh, I think that there is a, a group of people in our society who are very scared of becoming dependent and, and uh, possibly having a, um, physical problems at the end of life within which they'd find it very difficult to cope. I would like to say that in the places where euthanasia is legal, it's very rare that someone requests it for a physical problem such as pain. The main reason people ask for assisted dying is because of existential problems such as fear of being a burden, fear of being alone, a fear of things that haven't happened but um, the anticipated problems. And, and the fear of the dying process has increased as proponents of euthanasia legislation keep giving a story after story of bad deaths. As a palliative care doctor, I know that there is an enormous amount that can be done to help people physically towards the end of life, but less than half the people in Australia who would benefit from palliative care actually receive it. And so uh, we have this sort of a bit of a roundabout where people see a bad death, they're very scared of death and they want control. And, and in Victoria, where the legislation's been running now for uh, a couple of years, we're seeing that also, that it's the existential problems are pushing people to request um, voluntary assisted dying under their laws. Can you talk a bit more about palliative care? Um, so what is the alternatives or Christian approach to dying well? It, it's only very recently that uh, we've, we've stopped having a lot of teaching in the church about what is a good death. Mm. 
But in fact, um, back to the Middle Ages, there were books and treatises and lots of teaching about how um, at those times a rapid sort of a, a sudden death would be seen as a bad thing, whereas we all think, oh, I want to die in my sleep or, you know, when I don't even know what's happening. Back in the past, people wanted time uh, before they died so that they could make peace with God and their fellow fellow men. Mm. And so I think as Christians, we know that Christ has taken away the fear of death. We see that in Hebrews 2. And, and death is not natural. It's not what God intended for us. We don't have to be happy about death, but we don't have to fear it. And, and Martin Luther said that, you need to see death as a new beginning rather than the end. But it, we shouldn't despise our bodies in our temporal life. It's important before we die that we make our peace with and being reminded of the promises of God I think is very important at the end. And also it's a time when we need to um, make peace within our own uh, horizontal relationships. It's the time to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Um, I forgive you. I love you. And to um, to leave your affairs in the best possible order uh, as you approach the end of life. And the things that, call, that I think give Christians great comfort is just a reminder of the faithfulness of God and the presence of friends and family. Jesus, you know, reminds us, you know, you, you, I was sick and you visited me. Uh, the importance of us not forgetting those who are old, who are sick, who possibly have dementia and don't know who you are. The tragedy is not that, that they forget us. The tragedy is that we forget them. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today and sharing your heart. We're very thankful for the work that you both do. And I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, Father, thank you for both Jonathan and Megan and for the way that you have lavished them with your love and your mercy and your grace. And thank you for the expertise that you've given them. We pray that as they uh, walk alongside people in both the beginning and the end of life uh, issues, that you would give them your spirit's wisdom and discernment as they, as they teach, as they speak, as they care. And Lord, would you help each of us to think wisely on these issues? And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, that's the end of our sermon series on Meant to Be. I have to say it's one of the most challenging and difficult sermon series I've ever preached. But it's profoundly important to know who you are as a human being created by God in the image of God for the glory of God. Can't you say that God is, is, is pro-life? God is pro-life. And I'm not talking about placards outside of a clinic. I'm talking about how you view yourself. He loves you. He loves every human being. He loves to see people living a good life. And so everybody is valuable. As, as Christians, we need to, need to start to stand up Stand up for the unborn and stand up for the old person. Stand up for the persecuted and for the prisoner. Stand up for the immigrant and the refugee. Stand up for the disabled and the able-bodied. Stand up for the abused and the addict. Value them, love them, care for them. Every human being is fearfully and wonderfully made. So that child with Down syndrome, they're not a charity project. 
They're a cherished child of God. Encourage them, empower them, learn from them, embrace them. That man with dementia, he's not a project, he's a person, a brother, a father, a friend. And I want this church, the Bridge Church, to be a, a safe and inclusive place for every human being, regardless of age, stage, gender, race, sexuality, ability. God is pro-life. And God is pro-you. Do you believe that? God is pro-you, that you are loved, you are cherished, you are created, you are valuable. Do you believe that? Because far too many people in our church seem to have these insecurities about their identity, who they really are. I love the story of the man who had this old jumper in his wardrobe. And it was threadbare, it was too small, it didn't fit him anymore, it was too tight, holes everywhere, and logic would say, just check out that jumper. No use, he'd never wear it again. But sometimes love triumphs over logic. Because this jumper in his wardrobe, it wasn't mass-produced. He didn't buy it from a pile of jumpers in a shop. It was unique. It was one of a kind. It was precious because it was made by his mother. And every thread was chosen by her care and affection. And sure, it had lost its use, but it hadn't lost its value. It, it was valuable not because of its function. It was valuable because of its maker. And you, my friend, are valuable not because of your function, not because of your success or your looks or your postcard. You are valuable because of your maker. Because God made you and God loves you and God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. So church, let's live well. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and life to the full. Let's live well as human beings, knowing you are not defined by your success, your skin color, your body shape, or your sexuality. You're defined by God. Let's live well, knowing that no matter what past shame you are facing, what past guilt you are carrying, what present sins you are committing, no matter how broken you feel, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to me, and I'll heal your wounds. I'll heal the brokenhearted. I will love you. I will carry you. I will cherish you. Let's live well. Know that these human bodies are failing and flapping like tents. And one day we'll take our final breath. And one day we'll have perfect bodies with perfect minds. But God's in charge of that day, not me and not you. So live well. Knowing your dignity, your value, and your worth is not in what you do. It's in who you are, created by God in the image of God for the glory of God. Let me pray. Lord God, we come before you today as our Creator, our Father. You give and you take away. You give us every breath in our lungs. Thank you, Father, for the people that you place around us, for the communities that you provide. Thank you for our bodies. Thank you for our minds. Thank you for our sexuality. Thank you, Father, that there's no shame, there's no pain that isn't carried by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I pray right now for any who are watching who are feeling hurt, helpless, guilty. Spirit of God, would you bring comfort and healing in their pain? And may they find their hope and their redemption and their freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us as Christians to to stand up and to shine what it really means to be human, what it really means to be created in your image. And we pray that this society and this world that we live in might value every human life as being precious, worthy, and full of dignity. And we ask that for Jesus' sake.